This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Fixing broken pots. A study in laying down rights. Ah... This has uh, been a two-week journey. I mean, I could call it a, a 24-year journey, but at the same time, it comes and goes in cycles. Uh, the Christian life is made up of uh, seasonal, cyclical uh, emphases, where you learn something, and then you realize, oh, that was kindergarten. And then you go through it again. You're like, wait a minute, I thought I already learned that. And God says, first grade. Uh, and then you start to panic when you realize that's only first grade. But this is the lesson that I have learned so many times in different ways, and you would think I would have it down. And it's the idea of laying down rights in our life. It's like, oh, I've given up my rights. I've given up my life to Jesus. I died. Uh, I, now Christ lives. And yet the process of sanctification is continually showing that we need more of him and we need to get out of the way. So this is going to be a wonderful uh, reminder for all of us. You just, this message just happens to strike us all between the eyes no matter when we hear it in our life. A few raw materials for the message. So the message is called Fixing Broken Pots, which will make sense as we progress. That actually is a very uh, deep and meaty metaphor in our home, in the Ludi home, and so now I'm passing it on to you so it can be a deep and meaty metaphor for you. But before we get going, I just wanted to get some stuff out on the table, and we can move it around as we uh, give this message. So the first piece of raw material is Martha living. Now, I'm not going to teach on Mary and Martha necessarily. However, for those of you that know the story, Martha is doing what most of us instinctively, especially those of us in America, would tend to do. And that is she's busy about trying to serve the Lord. She is doing something with her time, with her energies that makes sense to many of us. Now, since many of us know the story, we hesitate to you know, want to compliment Martha. But for the most part, we compliment Martha-ness in our lives and in others' lives all the time. And so when it comes into a spiritual package, we go, oh, well, yeah, we don't want to be like Martha. However, most, most of us are just like Martha, and we esteem Martha-ness all the time. And that's going to come into play during this message, because what Martha's doing is what she thinks is the right thing. It's, it's the responsible thing. There is a responsible thing to be doing on planet Earth. And then there's this other thing that Mary in the other room is doing. It's like, you have got to be kidding Jesus, I'm running around preparing the meal, setting up the house so that I can take care of you. This girl, my sister, is sitting at your feet just listening to you. Excuse me, but that is a waste of time. You see, in our mind, now we know because of the spiritual nature of this story, and if you remember how Jesus responds, eh, 
what Mary's doing is actually the right thing, but it doesn't fit within our grid. So I just want to put that out on the table and just freshly remind us. I want us to be a church of Mary's, not a church of Martha's. And yet, I I know, Martha's a girl name, but I I can be a Martha quicker than maybe any of you in here. What's it called? Type A personality. I love to get things done. And so, Jesus, I'm your guy. If you want to get something done, I'll do it. And yet, the getting things done, what we should be doing with our time and our energies is oftentimes very different than what we default to. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. So here's raw material number two, rights. Just the word rights, I mean, we're Americans. We know the word, don't we? It's that which we have lawful uh, freedom to do. We can participate in it. I have rights. Don't mess with my rights. Don't touch my rights. And so when you get on the issue of rights, many of us as Americans just sort of pull out our gun and we're like, yeah, don't mess with me. I mean, this is our strength as a country, isn't it? So how does this play into this message? Laying down our rights? That doesn't sound American. So Paul addresses this. You see, Paul wasn't thinking from an American worldview. He was thinking from a kingdom worldview. And he's basically saying, you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That final word, God's, does not mean you are a God. It means you belong to God. That's a possessive uh, apostrophe S. In other words, your body and your spirit belong to him. It's property. You were purchased by his blood. And you are no longer your own. In other words... We don't really like talking about slavery. You know, it makes us a little uncomfortable. But in a sense, you are a slave. Doesn't that sound terrible? Did I just say that? But you are. But you're a slave to God. And he owns you. And technically, slaves don't have rights. I know this is early America, and we all fuss about that. However, in the kingdom of heaven, there's actually a principle there. You have laid down your rights. You have come and get this. Willingly, you laid down your rights. This is what Christianity is. This is how it starts. At the very onset of it, you lay your life before God and say, you purchased it, it's yours. Now you do with it what you see fit. And that actually includes every dimension of our lives. We always like pick one little area and we think it, the whole thing means that. It's like my Sunday mornings. We're like, okay, here, here you go, God. Or 10% of our income. It's like, oh, 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 here we go. And we set it before him as opposed to realizing, wait a minute, it's the whole kit and caboodle. Raw material number three, the Declaration of Independence. Yes. I used to teach constitutional law. I understand American history very, very well, and I know the importance of that document. Good document. Thumbs up. I'm very supportive of the Declaration of Independence. What does it say? Thomas Jefferson said, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I would agree with Thomas Jefferson that to develop any society and any government, you need to protect these unalienable unalienable rights. It's actually a good form of government. However, as a Christian, though these rights may be protected in a governmental sense, in a healthy government, we have already given them up. And so even though a government may protect my right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, my right was yielded to God a long time ago. Raw material number four, the bond slave. 
So in the Old Testament, we see a foreshadow of this construct of how the Christian is going to relate to his God in the New Covenant relationship. That after a certain period of time, a slave is actually set free. But out of love for his master, he comes back to his master and submits for life. And the, ma- the symbol of what the master does is he actually pierces his right ear with an awl against a doorpost. And now there is a mark on his body that shows that he belongs. And it's a symbol of an ear. An ear being a mark of a bond slave, meaning I have an ear for my master. Whatever my a- master asks, my answer is already predecided to be yes, Lord. And that is how Christianity functions. And so I just got these raw materials out for you just so that you can remember, freshly remember what Christianity is. Because as we go into a message like this, we have a tendency to fight. We have a tendency to complain inside of our soul. I do not want to let that go. Well, technically, that which you're holding on to, I could have sworn you already told God that it was his. How in the world did it get back in your grip? And so this is just a refresher sort of message where, yeah, you say, thanks, Eric, you're going through this afresh. Why do you need to take us through it afresh? And yet for us as a body, this is very critical. He died for all, speaking of Jesus, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. It's a great scripture. So the broken pots, the busted shovels, the bent machetes, and the rusty harmonica. I don't know how many of you are going to recognize this story, but it goes back to, do you guys remember the pineapple story? Uh, Otto Koning? I, I love Otto Koning. I love the pineapple story. There's just something about that story. So we, we sort of cycle through it. You know, it's just one of those things because every, every night we have audiobook time uh, with Hudson and some of the other kids are getting to the age where they're starting to sneak some peeks at this legendary audiobook time. And it's really fun uh, for Hudson. So it's like his special time and he gets set up with his snack. And we go through like a Christian biography and it's, it's an audiobook. Or, you know, we start to weave in some autoconing messages, and those are hilarious. Hudson just sits there and belly laughs the whole time. Autoconing really is a funny, funny guy. And so in the pineapple story, he's talking about laying down rights. You know, you'll see where, where this is coming from, because I've been freshly uh, gotten by the Holy Spirit as I'm listening to this message. I've heard many times, oh, come on, I gave up my pineapple garden a long time ago. And then suddenly God shows a little garden over here that I was like, oh, that one too? And so one of the funny things about that story, it goes into some of his other messages, but uh, he was a missionary in Erie and Jaya, Papua New Guinea. And, you know, he has a job to do. He's supposed to learn the language. He's supposed to uh, translate the book of John. He's supposed to report to his, you know, mission board. And there's certain things he has to get accomplished. If he doesn't get them accomplished, he's out. He's not considered a good missionary. And he's not the most academically inclined character to start with. And so he's not attracted to books and to learning and things like that. But he's, he's willing and he wants to be a good missionary. But he has a problem. Every tribe in Papua New Guinea, because I've, I've read so many stories. We've had so many audiobooks about Papua New Guinea. I can't tell you how many of my missionary stories are about Papua New Guinea. So Hudson knows all about Papua New Guinea. And but so what what you know about Papua New Guinea is that there's nothing truly predictable about any of the tribes. They're all different, and they're all very distinctive. And some are funny, and some are not funny at all. I think Otto Koning's tribe was probably not very funny. He just makes them funny. 
That's, that's my hunch, because all the other stories are dead serious. But he has an issue, and that is that he has tools. And all of his tribesmen, all the natives, keep coming to him with broken pots, busted shovels, bent machetes, and one time someone came with a rusty harmonic. He says, I don't even know where the guy got it from. And they want him to fix them. And he's like, it's junk. I am not about to waste my time to fix that junk. And so the, the statement back was, you're not a Christian. You've been telling us all this stuff about Christianity, but you won't fix my busted uh, shovel and my uh, broken pot. And so he's like, I'm not about to fix that. It's a waste of my time. I have language studies to do. I need to translate the gospel of John for you. And said these tribes people had no sensitivity to his demands. He's doing big things for God. He has come all the way across the world to serve them, and they want him to waste his time on broken pots. Now, I'm listening to this story, and for whatever reason, you see, I've been praying over the past couple weeks very specifically about things in my life. I've recognized that in the parenting side, I have certain things that I'm going through of frustration, certain things that have to do with uh, the lower um, age range that has now entered into my family uh, dynamics, that I'm wanting them to be older in their behavior. You see, I've already gone through that, and then we adopted two more little ones that are behaving as three-year-olds instead of as at least six-year-olds. The rest of the family is six years old and up. I'm not exactly sure why you're behaving like a three-year-old. <laughs> now, their response back could be very brilliantly put as, I am three. <laughs> However, in the midst of it, you see, Daddy has big things to accomplish. Daddy is changing the world for Jesus Christ. And this is slowing me down. I have, I have to get to... The, oh! And so there's this vulnerability towards frustration that I've noticed enter in. And I thought I whipped that. I thought that was past tense in my life. And so now I feel like, well, I want to blame it on certain little rascals in my life. It's like, I would be, so here's what got me, is when Otto Koning said, I would be a great missionary if I didn't have these natives. <laughs> I would be a great father if I didn't have these issues. But isn't that what fatherhood is? Isn't that when fatherhood is proven? You know, so I, I've been going through this, and so I, I've been freshly dealing with the broken pots. So Leslie and I are constantly, our language is, so how are you handling the broken pots? You know, I'm praying about that uh, again. When our little natives come, bearing all their broken pots. You see, what's amazing about the story with Otto Koning is how God leveraged this in his life. He fought it. He was angry. He, as he says, I used to never have an anger problem. I was fine until I came here and I started facing all these broken pots, busted shovels, and bent machetes. It's like I was fine, but my, and it aggravated him. It's like this stuff is worthless. I could get it for you for, a, you know, basically the time that I'm spending is not worth the amount it costs to fix this thing. And even after I fix it, it's not going to be worth anymore. So to him, it was a complete waste of time. And yet when he finally began to see the value of fixing broken pots, that tribe was changed. And this is, for me, the wrestling match of recognizing afresh what I'm here for, 
and what my time is for. So for auto coning, it was what about the language study? I don't know what it translates to in your life. But all I know is that you know, I, I sometimes you know, could say, sometimes could, it's just sort of a statement of fact. I have about three full-time jobs. Leslie has about three full-time jobs. Then we have six kids thrown on top. You know, I, I have things I need to get done. What about the language study? So that's what he's saying. What, what am I saying? Well, I have a lot of language study in my own life that needs to be tended to. How am I going to get this done if I keep on having to deal with these things? What about the translation of the Gospel of John? What about the good opinions of the mission board? And for Otto Koning, one of the things that was very interesting is what about my father's famous quote? You will never amount to anything, was what his father told him. He had spent his entire life trying to prove that he was going to amount to something. And his greatest fear was that the missionary board would send him home while his dad was still alive. And if he got sent home, what was his dad going to say? See, I told you, you can't even be a missionary. And so he was, he was so frustrated with these broken pots and busted shovels and bent machetes and rusty harmonicas. Why? Because they were threatening him. He needed to prove that he was valuable, that he was using his time wisely, and he needed to get the pat on the back from this system out there. Who do you need a pat on the back from? I've oftentimes asked the question, you know, because we always use the term, they say. Who's they? If you, I, mean, I don't know if you've ever just stopped for a bit and asked the question, who's they in your life? Who is it that you pause and consider their opinion as you're going through life? It's like, oh, they aren't going to like this. Ooh, ooh, stop right there. Who's they? Well, it's hard to describe. It's sort of a group of people. Usually it has a face. Ironically, they usually has a face. It's sort of a funny face. It might have like your mom's hairdo with your dad's nose. I'm not exactly sure. But a lot of times we have a they in our life that we want to appease. We want to satisfy. And it causes us to make decisions. And ironically, at the granular level of our life, get frustrated with broken pots. It's a funny thing, A plus B equals C. That that they plus the broken pot and the native sticking it in front of you saying, come on, aren't you going to fix my broken pot? Equals frustration, irritation, impatience. The tale of the two suikes. I know it looks like psyche or psyches, but I'm giving you a Greek word here. It's pronounced suke, yes, and we get our word psyche from this word. Caring about me, caring about him. You see, the first suke that is described in the Bible is a suke, and I'll describe suke for you, but this will give you a little heads up so you understand what it is. And if you understand what the word psyche is, which is the basis of psychology, the study of the mind, the perspective and the lens with which you appropriate life. So the first suke in the Greek is the one that says, life is all about me, my needs, my ambitions, my well-being, the fact that I am comfortable. And then there's another suke, which leads to the idea of caring about him. Who's him? Jesus. The second suke is actually a mental focus on someone other than yourself, very particularly upon the person of Jesus Christ. First, what in the world is a suke? Simply put, a suke is you. It's a very hard word to describe. It's translated as life. It's, and so it's sort of a hard word to describe, but 
Simply put, a suke is you. It's your life, your sense of purpose, your life's pursuits, your life's goal. It's like this lens, this motivation, this sense of purpose. It's like your purpose statement in life. Another way of saying it is the central reason for why you live out every day. The best one for me is it's the seed of your fulfillment. It's like the very cornerstone or the, 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 seat, the, the seed bed of your fulfillment. It's that place you go to to find fulfillment. And if this is dealt with, then you'll be fine. And for most of us, it's self being comforted. It's self feeling loved. It's self feeling secure that causes us to feel fulfilled in life. And God says, unless you give up your suke, unless you die to that and you forsake it, you actually will never live. Technically, listen to this, you will never be fulfilled. You see, it's a false sense of fulfillment. Did you guys ever hear the, the statement from Tim Allen? You know, he's the voice of Buzz Lightyear. That's, isn't that a great way to know someone? But, but Tim Allen, at one point in time, had the number one selling book on the New York Times bestseller list. He had the number one television show in the country, uh, Home Improvement, and then he had the number, a number one movie uh, on the, in, in the theaters at one point in time. I mean, literally, how in the world could one person accomplish all that? And what he said in his confession of it was he realized he had hit the peak of success and he was depressed. There was nothing there. He thought he was going to run into a pot of gold. He was going to find something there, but what he found was emptiness, and it led to despair. You know, that's, that's exactly what the Bible told him a long time ago. You see, if you think that in seeking after that pot of gold for your own self-fulfillment, your own self-glory, that you're going to find the thing that you're after, you'll die. But if you give up that pot of gold, if you forsake it, if you give up that suke, and allow God to give you a new lens, a new reason, a new focus, a new seed of fulfillment, a new way to be satisfied, you will find life. So introducing suke number one, caring about me. It's also known as self-absorption, the old man. So the Bible has different terms for this. Life that is born out of the flesh is the suke number one. But it's the life that cares about me first. Now, a lot of us can live our Christian life and we can say nice things about Jesus Christ and even be nice to each other the whole while thinking about ourselves. God needs to touch this dimension. Now, others of us have, are in the midst of a sanctifying process where we've died to ourselves, we've relinquished our life, we thought we'd totally dealt with suke number one. And then something comes into our life. You know, we, we have a good attitude about broken pots and then someone brings a rusty harmonica in. And we're like, well, I only fix broken pots. I don't fix... Rust, what a waste of time. That thing, that, that's a... Just throw it out. You see, for us, we need to be ready for whatever form this takes. And God is always sanctifying us at a deeper level. So introducing suke number two, caring about him. Christ absorption. It's also known as the new man. It's a renewed mind. It's a new lens. It's a new way. It's the attitude of Christ is revealed in Philippians 2. It's a new way of looking at everything in your life. You must die to the first suke. You must forsake. You must forsake that pot of gold and actually be born again. That's what the Bible says. You must have a new lens, a new way of living, a new life. You must give up suke number one in order to get suke number two. 
It's called being born again. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So you've been being told about this pot of gold, this life success, this fame, this glory. You know, if you were to make it in Hollywood, if you were to become uh, you know, a, a great musician, if you were to be elected president of the United States, you would find something. If you were to make a lot of money, it's, it's a pot of gold out here. It's the suke number one bait. And God is saying, are you willing to forsake that? You have to believe his word. Because his word says, that's empty. It's a big pot. I know it looks like it's going to satisfy you. You go to that pot, it's going to kill you. Are you willing to forsake that? To never pursue it again? To let it go and to say, I actually believe God's word that that is empty. And that he is where fulfillment comes. We must give up one. When you see this, and this is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 13. When you see the pot of gold, Jesus style. When you see the great pearl known as himself. The cross of Jesus Christ, the shed blood, the river of living waters. You see what he has given you. You see his love. You see his life. You're convinced. The Holy Spirit convinces you of the value, of the beauty, and of the fulfillment that is found in this. And so what do you do? You must forsake one to receive the other. One of the illustrations I oftentimes give at Ellerslie is if you have a cup and it's full of dirty water, what God says is, look, I want to give you clean water, living water. But to receive it, you must dump out what you have in there so that you can, can receive. Most of, it gets, most of it gets so focused on the dumping out. It's like, why does he ask me to give up things? He's not actually just wanting you to give up things. He's wanting you to get something. But to receive it, you must forsake. If you do not forsake, then you do not have the space in the cup with which to receive. So Jesus, knowing what we need, says, dump it, get rid of it, forsake suke number one so that you can be born anew. Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, whoa, and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Your suke is not on the things of God. Your reasoning is not in accordance with the kingdom of heaven. It's incorrect. It's based in the thinking of men. That was Peter's issue. His suke was still wrong. He had not been made new. And as a result, he was reasoning according to this world with a Martha lens. You see, what Jesus Christ has saved us from, not just Peter, but all of us, he saved us from that earthly lens so that we can begin to live and think and reason from suke number two. Then said Jesus to his disciples, listen to this, what he begins to go into is suke number two. He begins to show you a completely different way of reasoning. This is completely upside down to any of us. You take the American mindset and what most of us do in Christianity is we hollow this verse out of the Bible. It's like, well, that doesn't fit. That's not the pot of gold. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever desires the pot of gold, the fountain of youth, 
Whoever desires this stuff, suke number one, will die. He'll lose his life. But if you give up that pursuit, if you give up that life and you follow after me, then you'll find life. Listen to the next line. This is where he uses the word suke. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So that word life in both those sentences, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever, desire, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That word for life is suke. So if you desire to save your suke, to go after the pot of gold, to have the satisfaction in this life, to have your fulfillment be in the earth's pot of gold, then you will lose everything. But if you're willing to forsake that, you will find heaven. You will find life abundant. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. So now some of us don't have a lot to brag about when it comes to the earth's pot of gold. But one of the things Christianity will touch on, and which is extra difficult if some of us are like swimming around in a pot of gold, sort of Scrooge McDuck. Do you remember when he would sit on his gold pieces? You know how hard it is to let go of that suke when it has a grip on you? Now, some of us are in an empty place, just sort of empty gas tank. It's not hard for someone to say, hey, do you need some help? And we go, yes, I do. However, when you have a full gas tank, it's a little strange for someone to say, yeah, do you need some help with your car? No, thank you. I'm fine. And many of us, because we live in the American culture, we have full gas tanks. And as a result, it's very difficult to relinquish and to yield up something that's working just fine. My life is fine. Thank you. We oftentimes have to reach tragedy or extreme circumstances to actually be bent to recognize, no, you need to give this up. You are never going to find life this way. It's a false, counterfeit version of living that many of us have on this earth. Because we've never given up this life in exchange for Jesus Christ. So Paul says, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. He says, look, I had gold pieces over here. I understand what the world was after. I had a best-selling book, a best-selling movie, and a best-selling TV show all at once. I forsook it all. C.T. Studd is one of my favorite illustrations in giving up the suke. The man was literally LeBron James or Peyton Manning of his world. He was one of the top athletes in his age. He was a cricket player, which doesn't translate very well for us as Americans. Like, really? <laughs> and yet he was, a, he was a great athlete, and he just happened to live... You guys ever seen Pride and Prejudice? Remember Pemberley Estate? Uh-huh. That's C.T. Studd's house, okay? He grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. He had a fortune. A fortune! One of the wealthiest men in all of England. And he was one of the most famous men in all of England. And what did he do? He gave it all up for Jesus Christ. He gave all of his money away. He gave his fortune away completely, left cricket, and went to interior China to preach the gospel. You know that no one knew that he even needed financial support? Because he didn't tell anyone. Everyone thought, oh, he's rich, he's, he's fine. And he went, gave it all away. Moody Bible Institute was started because of a third of the donation from C.T. Studd in that time. And he went to interior China, and no one even knew he needed resources. And he had nothing. All he had was God. Talk about giving up your suke and finding life. That man's life still to this day reverberates through mine. I am changed by his decisions, by him giving up his suke. Suke number one, self. There you go. 
The self-driven life, the essence of sin. Suke number two, Jesus. You see, you can live for self, suke number one, and die. Or you could live for Jesus. You see, the new man that is being formed in us is Jesus. That's what's growing up inside of us. It's the likeness of Christ. It's actually the life of Christ. So this is the God-driven life, the essence of righteousness. So if you understand first and seconds, at Ellerslie I teach first and seconds a lot because that's how God teaches it throughout the Bible. The thing that comes first is the flesh. The second is the spirit. And it's all throughout the Bible. You know, you have the Old Testament, the New Testament. The first one shows you the weakness of the flesh and the power of sin over you because it gives you the righteous standard of the law and says, keep it, and then we can't. So all it's proving is the power of the law, the power of the flesh controls the power of sin. The second one shows us the power of the spirit, which trumps the power of sin and actually defeats it through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The second is stronger. And so all throughout the Bible, you'll see that the first and the second are at odds with each other. So you have Cain and Abel, who was born first. Cain. Abel's born second. First one, God doesn't receive his, his uh, offering. The second one pleases God. The second one always pleases God. Then you have Ishmael, Isaac. Who's born second? Ish, er, Isaac. Isaac pleases God. Ishmael, eh, get the guy out of here. He, he can't stand before me. Esau, Jacob, twins in the womb. Esau comes out. He's like the ultimate hunter, manly guy. And God chooses the second. It's Jacob, who's a heel-grabbing deceiver who then grabs a hold of God instead of a heel and finds life. You have this symbol, Saul, David. Who's the king that pleases God? Who's the one after his own heart? It's the second king. And so all throughout the Bible, you'll see this flow. And so in 1 Corinthians, you see Paul referring to this first and second. The first life that you must forsake is suke number one. The second is the one, the man from heaven. It's Jesus Christ. It's the one you must gain. And you gain it by faith, by forsaking unto faith. Repent and believe. This is how you gain suke number two. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, suke number one, became a living being. The last Adam, suke number two, who's Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual, suke number two, is not first, but the natural, suke number one. And afterwards, the spiritual, which is suke number two. The first man, suke number one, was of the earth. Made of dust, the second man, suke number two, is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, suke number one, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, suke number two, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, suke number one, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man, suke number two. Self-fulfillment, which is suke number one, versus God-fulfillment. Where do you find your fulfillment in life? And this is part of where it comes to the laying down of rights. Because when we have a right and we hold on to it, what we have a tendency to do is exclude ourselves from the benefit of true fulfillment. You see, God wants to satisfy this life. He's the only one that can. But we have a tendency to see things in our life the same way Martha did. It's like, if I can provide a good home, if I can get this meal on the table... Jesus will smile back and say, this is really good food, and I will be satisfied. You see, she is trying through her lens, through her suke, to satisfy Jesus. And in so doing, to satisfy herself, because she wants to check that off the list and feel spiritual. However, the thing that she must do is relinquish this expectation that weighs over her of how she is supposed to live her life for approval. And Jesus says, hey, Mary, or Martha, why don't you come join Mary at my feet? 
what? And it goes exactly opposite the grain of our soul. I can't stop. I'm made to serve. I am, I am one that bustles about and is anxious about little things so I can please people. I can get food on the table. I'm, I'm a good housewife. And Jesus says, you need to forsake that suke number one. It's hindering you from finding the better stuff, the good stuff that can only be found when you make me your priority. For whosoever will save his life, and there's the word for suke, shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Now, this isn't just referenced once. You'll see all those references below. In other words, the Gospels literally reveal this statement five different times. I think that should be a hint that it's a pretty important statement in the Bible. Quote, unquote, five times. All right? You need to give up your suke. And if you don't, you'll never find life. But if you do give it up, you will find life. So why in the world are we holding on to it? The poverty mentality. When, when I used to work in the inner city, one of the, the things you learn is this idea that when a child has been raised without anything, then they have a tendency to live from a poverty mentality. And so if they ever, if you like put a big spread of food before them and invite the kids from the neighborhood, what they have a tendency to do is stuff their pockets, not just their mouth, stuff their mouth, but also their pockets full of food because they're afraid that this will be the last meal they'll ever eat. So one of the things that God has been touching in my life, not just these last two weeks, but we're talking last couple of years, for me, adopting children is very backwards from what seems reasonable with how much weight I have in my life already. Eric has a lot on his plate. So, God, I don't, and I've actually had this discussion quite a few times. God, I'm, I'm sort of coming before you on this whole issue of family. You know, I'm, I'm preaching this week on uh, exhorting the body to embrace the inconvenient. Gulp. Uh, so I just want to be honest before you that I'm ready to embrace whatever inconvenience you want to bring into my life. I just want, before, before you answer, before you say anything, I just want to remind you that you've assigned to me a whole bunch of stuff here. So I'm dealing with a lot of things, but I just want you to know that I'm available. I'm available to embrace the inconvenient things that might really uh, cause me to not be able to do the other things that you have called me to. So just weigh that before you start giving me more assignments. Isn't it funny how we think God sort of needs some information uh, from us? So... As I've walked, and I was dealing with it fresh this week. I've been, uh, I moved, after I got my Fitbit, uh, which marks my walking, I turned my, I walk during my prayer times anyways, but I realized I can get a lot of mileage out of walking around the neighborhood multiple times in my prayer time. So I, that's what I've been doing. So I've been walking, talking to God about these issues. And so my discussions are very frank and honest with God. Saying, okay, God, I, I got six of these little munchkins right now, and I love them. I mean, they're just as precious as can be. However, I, you know, there's other families around me that have like 10, 12, 14. And I, I'm just, I, I want you to know that my home is yours. But I, I, there's a hesitation inside of me. And, and as I'm listening to Otto Koning go through laying down rights and all these things, for me, the issue that is struck square in between my eyes is the issue of time. And so what I've dealt with over the past couple of years, and Leslie and I go back and forth because we call it the uh, poverty of time 
mentality. In other words, I'm showing you the poverty mentality, but poverty of time. When I'll make statements, and I've begun to correct this over the past years, but I make statements like, yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah, I, I'm really uh, booked solid this week. I don't have any time. And so Leslie now will just sort of stop me. He's like, what was that? It's like, oh, yeah, <clears throat> I, have, I have time for whatever God wants me to do. <laughs> I ha- my life belongs to him. I, I'm, not, I do not have, I'm not impoverished with time. I have a life, and it belongs to him. And so I have to change my thinking because it's a suitcase number one thinking in regards to my rights for time because there's certain things in my life that I think I need to get done. I, this has to agree with some of you in here. I'm not exactly sure if it's a personality thing, but I have certain things that I've been trying to get to for years. <laughs> and God keeps bringing more inconveniences into my life, and it slows me down because I was just about to start that project. All right, good attitude, rejoice. We're going to, all right, let's move forward. And so in this process, this time issue has become a very sensitive one for me because I have things that to me, and this is where the Martha illustration comes in, to me are the ways that I want to honor Jesus. I want to set the table real nice and I want to get the, the food. out. I'm not even one that cooks food very well. So to use this as an illustration is sort of awkward for me. But uh, to set the table real nice and have the steaming dish of something there and have Jesus say, Jesus, uh, the food's, food's ready. Whew. Whew. Wow, that was quite the job. And then he eats it and you lean in and he goes, it was very tasty. Ah, and then there's the fulfillment. You see, instead, I am trying to set the table and I got broken, uh, I got busted pots and bent machetes over here. They keep coming to me. It's like, all right. I really need to set the table for Jesus. I don't really have time for the busted pot. Or do I? What am I here for? And this is the fresh reminder for Eric Ludi. I am here, and yes, God has given me an assignment. How do I fulfill that assignment? By guarding my own time? By trying to treat everything as precious and getting irritated with anything that tries to threaten that? Well, I thought I died to that. I was just here for Jesus Christ. Whatever you ask me to do, I'll do. And there was a freedom in that. And the next thing you know, wait a minute, I haven't been able to get to this. I really feel God wants me to do this. But I, can't, I keep on having these irritations and these distractions. If I can just focus on this, then. So the poverty mentality, stuffing the pockets full. Impoverishment of time. Ah. Oh. You just, you need this time. You ever had that statement? It's like, if, if there were 36 hours in the day, I could just catch up on things. And if I could just, if I could live off of three hours of sleep, this is the way Eric's mind has worked for years. And yet God is in charge of time. God is the one that invented 24 hours a day, and he knows what he's doing. And he's not upset, you know, fidgeting about and sweating because... These things aren't getting done. Have we ever just checked his face in the situation? How does he approach a broken pot? What would he do in Irian Jaya, Papua New Guinea? Because there's language studies to do. What about his father's statement about you'll never amount to anything? Doesn't that move Jesus? I mean, isn't he going to do something about this? Instead, what's he doing? We all know what he's doing. We all know that he's going to take that broken pot and he's going to turn it into a picture of heaven. We know what he does. For whatever reason, he doesn't get irritated and impatient 
with bent machetes and rusty harmonicas. What about the language study? What about the translation of the Gospel of John? What about the good opinion of the missions board? What about my father's famous quote? Uh, this is Otto Koning. Really, I've never been an angry person. You see, when you allow those broken pots to become a threat to your spiritual life or to your calling, instead of embracing them, you'll notice that funny behavior and funny fruit is born out of your life. And you find that things like anger and frustration and irritation seem to be bedfellows with you. You produce that fruit very quickly. But things like love and kindness and mercy and joy, peace, eh, not so much. I would be a great missionary if it wasn't for these natives. I would be a great husband if it wasn't for my wife. I'd be a great father if it wasn't for my kids. I would be a great pastor if it wasn't for these irritating congregants. I'd be a great Christian if it wasn't for all these demands on my time. Oh, I would bear the fruit of the Spirit if I didn't have all these issues. You see something wrong? That's suke number one. Mary chose a better part. She's not bustling around and anxious, but she's doing something which is contrary to the way we are all wired. We want the table set and we want the food prepared. And I don't see anything wrong with having tables set and food prepared. That's where the challenge is in our soul. There's nothing wrong with language study. There's nothing wrong with translating the Gospel of John. There's nothing wrong with your dad realizing, well, you did amount to something. Nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves. But when you're functioning out of suke number one, you can never quite get it accomplished because even if you did do your language study, and even if you did translate the book of John, and even if your dad did look at you and go, hmm, not bad, there would be still a longing, a golden pot that would be greater. And you'd still be headed in this direction until you finally give that up. You'll still be on the, that treadmill. The daddy test. We'll call it the four frustrations. Now, I mean, these aren't things that I, of course, would deal with. I'm more setting them out for all the other daddies in here. Uh, the foot through the pull-up. Okay, now I'm, I'm in a hurry. I have to get the kids up to the table. Uh, I have to go down and get uh, two little munchkins that if you add one plus one plus one together, you get uh, the total of their age. And I have to get them upstairs. And you got things like uh, underwear and pull-ups that have little small holes and you got kids that are just, man, I, I don't have time for this. Get, get, get that thing through there. And I wouldn't do that. I'm just saying for any of the fathers in here. The backward shoes. I think it's about 50 times I've shown how to put those shoes on. You know, the, the toe aims in, like towards the other one. Every single time. There it is again. All right, take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. All right, let's remove the shoes and let's put them on right. The soaked mattress. You leave a, a sippy cup in the room and what do you find? Soaked mattress. That takes time. You see, I'm in a hurry and I need to get to my next meeting but now I have to deal with sheets and get them up and into the dryer to dry them. And I, ah, 
Uh, oh, this isn't me. This was just general illustrations for you. <laughs> the funny smell. Uh, Eric, could you get uh, <clears throat> one of the one plus one plus one year olds up? And I come down and there's... <laughs> oh, no. You see, there's an extra amount of labor involved in that smell that is going to deviate me from my agenda that day, which was just to go down, get a child up, get them upstairs, and then I could get back to this thing that is very important. Instead, there's a bent machete down there. I got a rusty harmonica down the hall here, a broken pot. I have language study to do. Oh, this isn't me. This is, this is just general <laughs> illustration. The evidence is that daddy is needing to lose his psyche. Hey, kid, I've got things that I need to be doing. The fact that you can't put your foot properly through the pull-up hole is really hindering my ability to be productive today. Hey, kid, I've taught you 50 times how to properly stick on your tennis shoes. I don't have time to keep fixing your mistakes. Your daddy is an important man. I've got things to be doing. And fixing your shoes issue is not on my list. Hey, kid, now you've done it. You really blew it this time. Your sheets are soaked and they need to be put through the dryer. A job, mind you, that takes time to do. Time that I simply do not have. Hey, kid, what's that smell? You didn't do what I think you did, did you? Daddy needs to be leaving this house in five minutes. You sure did pick a whopper of a time to throw this curveball at me. Don't you realize that daddy can't just always be cleaning up your messes? If that's all I did, well, I wouldn't amount to much on this earth. Hey, kid, I'm trying to serve Jesus. All your three-year-oldness is really making it hard for me to stay focused on my grand calling. Well, it's not me. This is just general illustrations. Every single one of us, whatever you need to stick in there to recognize the bait, to recognize that which can take us off track from knowing what we really are here for. Jesus' business was and is fixing broken pots. He specialized in it. Just think about what Christianity is. Just think about who you are. You're a broken pot that came to Jesus, and how did he respond? Hey, look, I'm trying to save the universe here. I don't have time for you. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is broken, that which is bent, that which is busted, and that which is rusted. Our business is fixing broken pots. We are specialists in, listen to this. This is your new job description. We are specialists in patiently and joyfully helping wobbly, misguided feet find their way through pull-up holes. We are so good at that. It's like, oh, go to a Christian. Christians are really good at that wobbly foot through the, especially even when there's other things, other demands out there. Just go to a Christian. A Christian specializes in this. Lovingly stooping down to once again instruct little munchkins in how to properly put on their tennis shoes. Graciously responding to spilled or purposely dumped sippy cups. Cheerfully facing all smelly situations with the very same kindness and mercy that God showed to us when we <clears throat> had our own smelly situations. How did Jesus handle your smelly situations? Did he come in and get frustrated? Did he blow a fuse? Or did he tenderly care 
and clean and wash. Jesus is the model of how to fix broken pots. He values them, and he's willing to give his entire life to see them fixed. If you truly are in the business of serving Jesus, then you'll have a high value for pots. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. How you handle the broken pots is actually not just important, it's center stage. It seems to be the proving ground from sheep and goats. How you handle the broken pots, the bent shovels, the busted machetes, and the rusty harmonicas. This is the proving ground. I don't know where you're at, what your issues are, what your rights are that may be creating whatever dynamic is in your life. However, if you can apply this to your life, it can change you. The preciousness of time. Invest it wisely. Does God care about our time? Of course he does. It's not the antithesis that God's saying, oh, waste your time. Oh, throw it down the drain. It doesn't matter. God cares about our time. And we're supposed to invest it wisely. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We are here for a certain period of time on this earth. And so teach us to number our days, to be aware of the limitations of this short window of time. It's but a breath. And so therefore, let's live it for Jesus. However, if you live in that shortness of time out of suke number one, you'll be frustrated. But if you live in that shortness of time out of suke number two, you'll be marked by peace and joy. And guess what? In fixing the broken pots, you'll be truly changing the world. How does the world get changed by us spending our time fixing broken pots? Well, that's what Jesus did. I know Jesus' life, if you just take it as a microcosm, separate it from all of history, actually doesn't look that impressive. I mean, how many people did he have following him in the end? You know, he had 12 of those guys lingering around him. One betrayed him. So there's 11 left, and they all fled. That's not looking good. And, you know, at the cross, he's surrounded by a whole bunch of humbugs. Not a lot of support. This is his life. This is how he ended. He ended looking like a criminal. Well, that doesn't look very good. What did the guy do? Well, he fixed broken pots for a living. No wonder it ended up that way. No, no, no. Stay focused. How did it end up? It didn't end there. That was the avenue through which life was poured out. You see, this is the avenue through which abundant life enters the earth, how we handle broken pots. In each of our days, now for you it might not be time. Time may not be the issue for you. It might be reputation. It might be money. It could mean all sorts of different things. Different things that we're holding on saying, God, I need to have this otherwise. And God says, well, otherwise what? Could you lay that down so that you could have life? We have different issues in our life. And this will be a cyclical pattern in our life of sanctification. Where maybe today God will give you a fresh batch of encouragement of how to apply this. And then he'll return to the same exact issue and say, remember that, uh, those rights issues? The heavenly decision. So here's Otto Koenig. He actually came to the, the conclusion of laying down his rights for time. He says, I'm here on this island to care 
for Jesus, to serve him. That's why I'm here. I'm not here for language studies. I'm not here to impress the missionary board. I'm not here to even translate the book of John. I'm here for Jesus. I'm not here to impress my dad. I give this up. My time now belongs to Jesus Christ because he was deeply convicted that he needed to be fixing these pots, but he felt he was upset about it constantly. Couldn't these guys learn lessons? He actually had whole strategies of keeping them silent so they wouldn't tell other villages about the fact that he fixed pots. And that backfired on him. And now all these other villages were now showing up with their broken stuff too. He's like, all day long, all I do is fix junk. What kind of life is this? And what happened in the, well, let me finish this. I can care for him by taking my time and fixing broken pots. To fix a broken pot is not a waste of my time. Listen to this. But the most perfect investment of it. And as one of the missionary uh, guys came and surveyed the work of Otto Koning, and Otto Koning thought he was just, you know, he was dejected, he was miserable. It's like, this guy's going to see every flaw in me because I, don't, I haven't done any of the translation work. I haven't, I'm not caught up in my books. I mean, John hasn't even been started. I haven't even learned the language yet. And what the guy said is, you're 10 years ahead of every other missionary. What are you doing? He says, this and that. A uh, little of this, a little of that. <laughs> what was he doing? He was fixing broken pots. You see, the, what flows out of doing the small things well is life abundant. Changing out dictionaries. First, the dictionary of this earth, written in the language of suke number one. Inconvenient. See, I, I have a pronunciation guide for you up there just in case you're struggling. Causing trouble, difficulties or discomforts, awkward, difficult, inopportune, untimely, ill-timed, unsuitable, inappropriate, unfortunate, tiresome, troublesome, irritating, annoying, vexing, bothersome, aggravating. Some of you are like, I could quote that list. Irritating. Inconvenience is what we try and avoid, like the plague. Instead of recognizing this is our proving ground. This is the avenue through which the life of God flows into this earth, out of our life. You want to be an effective Christian, you need to get a new dictionary. Because that simple word, inconvenience, doesn't translate well for us with suke number one. So Jesus says, throw out suke or dictionary number one. Get rid of that thing. Hey, hey, come over here. Look at my definition. The second, the dictionary of heaven, written in the language of suke number two. Inconvenience. Listen to this. This is a change. This is just a different dictionary. I know some of you are like, I've never seen that definition. Well, you need to be reading a better dictionary. <laughs> Causing thrill. Could you imagine someone says, that's inconvenient. Like, oh, really? Oh, that's exciting. That causes thrill. <laughs> Causing thrill. Leaps of joy or heavenly euphoria. That which strengthens, makes way for grace and reveals Christ's glory. That which is perfectly orchestrated, providentially planned. The circumstances through which the sovereign power of God are most manifest. Includes, but it's not limited to, such exciting things as feet that can't find their way through pull-up holes, shoes put on backwards, soaked mattresses, and funny toddler smells. <laughs> you see, in the first dictionary, we get upset with those. In the second dictionary, we look it up, we're like, God, what, what do you say about the, uh, feet that can't make their way through pull-up holes? Oh, it causes thrill and euphoria. Oh, how come no one told me that? That's why I'm telling you now. Little did you know those funny smells actually equate to that type of thing. Excitement, euphoria, leaps for joy. Could you imagine the next time you get a funny smell, you're like, yeah! 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man is found, he hides, and for the joy thereof goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. God likens the kingdom of heaven in suke number two to a treasure. This life, he says, when you see it, you sell all. You give up all of this so that you can have all of this. Haven't you seen it? Have you ever gotten the vision? Is there anything you need to let go? Of course, the answer is probably yes. But let's allow the Spirit of God, even for those that are like, oh, no, I don't think there is anything. Let's just allow the Holy Spirit to freshly work and to show different areas, even if they be small, that we need to freshly let go of. Things. Money. Reputation. Time. Wife. Kids. Health. Life. You see, each of these represents a dimension of our life. Now, some of you aren't married with kids. You can translate that to family, friends, if you need to. Whatever it is that is potentially holding on to us that we can't serve God in this way, we can't do this because we may lose this. I'm not about to give my resources to that person because then I wouldn't have them. That's suke number one. But when God moves us to give, we give, and what do we always know? We'll have an abundance for every good work. We'll have everything we need. And so we live out of suke number two, a different dictionary. And we're willing to forsake suke number one. And the famous quote that many of you know, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Father, I ask that you would search us and try us, that you would know us. And if there are any things in our life, any dimensions of our life where we are Martha-esque, where we have expectations or we have needs that are based in suke number one, that are actually hindering our ability to serve you and to know you better and to sit at your feet and just listen because we're bustling and we're anxious. Father, I pray that you would freshly touch those areas and set us free. We lay them before you now, Lord. We set them before you and I pray that you would clarify to us what that means. Pierce our ear with an awe. And may we declare afresh that we are bondservants of the living God. Our life is not our own. It belongs to you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.